it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Hello, hello. Season 2, Episode 5. I sat down with Rowena Alegria. She is the director and founder of the Citywide Storytelling and Cultural Preservation Project, known as I Am Denver. She also founded and directs the Denver Office of Storytelling. And obviously, she's a writer. I'm really excited about this one, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. This is a little bit of a different interview because we're kind of here to discuss something a little different than usual today, but I happen to know that you are also a writer, so I'll still start with my traditional opener, which is why do you write? I wouldn't know how to do anything else. Um, I mean, aside from a hot minute when I was maybe five that I wanted to be Miss America, (laughs) um, (laughs) I wanted to be a writer. I mean, pretty much as soon as I learned to read and discovered books, I wanted Mm. to write them. And like most writers, I think you don't lock yourself in a room and, you know, talk to imaginary people unless you're compelled to do so. It's a hard thing. And I definitely have that compulsion. I, if I'm not putting words on a page, I'm not complete and I'm not content and I can't process my life until it's on paper. And I, I see it in black and white. I I don't make sense of it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I write cause I have to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious. Um, a lot of writers, you know, routines, so to speak, have gotten a little bit off during the pandemic. But I'm curious about you. Um, has it has it changed? I haven't written in, with the exception of one short story, in about a year. Wow. Oh. You know, at the very beginning, when the stay-at-home order went into effect, I thought, ah, this is beautiful. I'm gonna have all this time to write. <laughs> yeah. And for the first. I don't know, four weeks, six weeks. It was a little bit of time. Um, I was writing every single day and really on a roll. And then May came and that's just, it's a really impossible month for me. It's mm. the, it was the fifth anniversary of my husband's death. It's his birthday. It's our anniversary. It's Mother's Day. Mm. Then it's our baby's birthdays. And then it's Father's Day, all within five weeks. And usually my in-laws come, my sister-in-law and her her kids come uh, for the baby's birthdays and it like just, it, it's healing for me. It helps me for them to be here and I get to talk about him and grieve and celebrate him. And this year they couldn't come. Mm. And on top of everything else going on, I mean, it just, it took me out. I couldn't write and yeah. I didn't write. I think I didn't start writing again until July. Yeah. So, I mean, I took a couple months where I, I didn't, I don't think I put a word on a page. Hmm. Um, but then I, I took a, a reading as a writer class at Lighthouse about um, magical realism hmm. and the strategies of it and looking at, you know, some of my favorite writers in the world, Luis Erdrich and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and yeah. um, a whole bunch of folks. And, and it just, it was so inspiring and reminded me, you know, why I do what I do. And it got me back to the page. I haven't been incredibly productive since then because uh, it's just life has been so crazy. But I'm I'm definitely writing again, yeah. Uh, at least at least sort of. And I did send out a uh, a short story to uh, a contest, which I hadn't done in a 
a hot minute. So yeah, nice. That, that was good. And I'm taking another class now at Lighthouse because that one was so good. This one's um also reading as a writer, and it's uh, just a four week study of Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. Wow. And <laughs> the brilliance. Yeah. The brilliance of that book and that woman. It just it's inspiring too. To just, yeah. That'll you know, definitely take it apart. Because yeah. you look at it and it's like, oh my God, it's a bright light on a mountain. And then um, when you start taking it apart as a writer and really looking at, you know, what's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? Where's the tension? How'd she do this? What are the themes? There's a, there's a craft. Mm -hmm. There's a strategy. It, it didn't just magically appear. Yeah. So um, it's been really good. The, the, I had the second class on Thursday. I've got two more coming up. And yeah, I'm just dying to get back to the page now. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's good. That is good. I mean, I, how could you not be inspired by a, a class like that? I I did take actually a, a workshop during the during Lit Fest with Lacey Johnson that was inspiring, but it's it's just been challenging. I finished a manuscript this time last year and just had to let it sit for like a year. But you that's know, what you have to do. Yeah, if you're gonna see it clearly to to revise it, and I, I really do think. The magic happens in revision. Yeah. Well, you got you to gotta put it a distance between it and you. Mm -hmm. Like you can look at it like it's not you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'll get so, Thanks. Tell us a little bit more about kind of your uh, background as a writer and, and who you are. Sure. Um, so I got my first poem published when I was in like second grade. Aww. DPS at that point in time did a, a print publication. It was a, a citywide, you know, a district literary magazine. And I had a, a haiku in there. Oh. And, <laughs> I, and then like in fourth grade, I won the governor, some governor's like radio message contest or something. And I mean, I was just convinced that I was a writer and I was supposed to be a writer. And so I, I took English classes and, and read like a crazy woman. Um, my mom is, I think, undiagnosed dyslexic, my adopted mom. Mm -hmm. And so she, she wasn't a big reader, but God bless her. When the scholastic book order forms came <laughs> home, she'd be just like, get what you want. And I would come <laughs> home with, you know, boxes of books. Like I would check everything. And they were 15 cents and 10 <laughs> cents for books. So I would come home when I would have tons of books. That's and awesome. then I was one of those dorky kids who, you know, for summer of reading in the library, you didn't get prizes back then, but they had a chart at the mm -hmm. library at the branch and you would have your name on it. And when you would finish your books, you would come in and you could, you know, check. Yeah. And I, you know, took great pride in having one of the big long lines next to my name because I was reading everything I could get my paws on. Um, so, I mean, I've loved words forever and ever and ever. So when I went to college, I was a creative writing major. Yeah. Um, even though they didn't have it then, I asked for a uh, contract major and yeah. um, just took every lit class and writing class I could find. Um, then went away to Mexico for a semester to work on my Spanish mm. and came back and found that if I switched my major and my minor, I would have enough credits to graduate a year early. So mm -hmm. that was done. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I wound up graduating with a Spanish major, but um, I had been working starting in high school at a family owned oil company here in town. I was just a file clerk. And then I was a data entry person. And then I was a, a, a chemical I don't remember what it was called, a lab tech. And mm -hmm. then I was a salesperson and I hate sales. <laughs> that well, was the I... one job I was ever fired from um, <laughs> because I would sit and do my homework and then I would fake my log. I just didn't want to get on the phone and make those cold calls. It was miserable. No yeah. Um, and so getting fired was actually the, the gift of my life because um, it allowed me to go to school full time. I could, I could collect unemployment, which I knew I wasn't supposed to do, but I was looking for work. I didn't <laughs> have to find any. Um, and I, I was eligible for scholarships. I applied for um, MSU Metro State at the time was starting its first honors program. And I applied for uh, 
that program and I got in and it was a, it was a full ride scholarship. So that, that got me through school for my degree. Um, but I was also taking a literary magazine class on the weekend at Arapahoe Community College. Mm. And I mentioned to the teacher that I had lost my job and he said, well, come work for me. And he was running a, um, private investigations business, <laughs> but also, uh, editing the poetry magazine for the Foothills Arts Center. Okay. And so I had a part-time job and part of it was doing, you know, mostly record search and, you know, fun things like going to a, a bar and, you know, doing one of those secret shopper things and watching what was happening at the, at the till and with customer service and whatever, and then writing a report um, for part of the time. And then the other part of the time I was editing a poetry magazine. And back then, you know, we still had waxing, the waxing machines and the light tables to lay things out. And I would set all the type on a IBM Selectric typewriter. And wow. then we would go to publication printers on uh, South Platte and, and lay the darn thing out. And wow. that, so that was my first journalism job. And I, would, I was 21, I think, when I got that job. And I, I just... I. After that, I never applied for a journalism job. They just kept falling in my lap. People yeah. would ask me, would you, would you do this? So I was editor of El Seminario, which is a bilingual pub here for, for a bit. And um, when I was graduating from Metro, I, I was helping the, the Spanish secretary with some copying or something and waiting for the line to move for the copier, I was reading the bulletin board and the Denver Post had a internship opening. Mm. And that it was like Tuesday and the, the application was due Friday at five. <laughs> and I said, I could do this. <laughs> so, you know, I got my stuff together. I um, got uh, one of my, you know, favorite professors to do a quick letter for me. And I dropped it off at five on Friday. And as soon as I dropped it off, I knew I, I knew I had it. I just had, you know, sometimes you feel those things. Yeah. I walked out of there going, I've got this. And sure enough, I, I got an internship at the Denver Post that started two weeks after I graduated from college. Wow. And it was supposed to be 12 weeks and it turned into 12 years. Wow. Um, <laughs> so I did, you know, I started on the copy desk and did copy editing and then moved over to the business news. And I, there I was the, the leader of the tech team. And so we were, you know, we were covering the rise of the internet and uh, the fall of US West and mm. Quest and Joe Naccio and wow. Aerospace, and all the websites that were coming up, like, oh my <laughs> God, you're going to be able to buy stuff on the internet. Right. We, we were writing all those stories. Um, and it was a blast. It was, it was super fun. Um, but it, you know. It's a grind every day, all day, um, being at the whim of what's happening in news. And I had, I, by that point, I was a single mom with two little guys and I just didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, I met a wonderful man who swept me away uh, to the Eastern Plains of Colorado. We <laughs> oh, lived in a little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I lasted almost two years there. And then I said, get me the hell out of here. Uh, <laughs> so we went to the Oregon coast and oh, wow. lived over there for a couple of years. And he dragged me back because I, I really loved it there. But as soon as I got back, uh, the Denver post called and said, Hey, we're doing um, a Latino publication. Come talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I became editor of Viva Colorado. And I did that for six years. And when I left, I was, I was publisher and columnist and editor and reporter and everything else. Um, and then I went over to the mayor's office and was comms director for three plus years of the first term, which I like to say are dog years. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, it was like, you know, it's 24-7. So it felt like 10 years. Yeah. Um, and then my husband died. Mm. So I, uh, I moved over to the Agency for Human Rights and Community Partnerships uh, to be communications director and to, to figure out some new ways to engage community. Mm. And uh, I, I, w one of the things I really learned when he died is there's no guarantee of tomorrow. Mm. So I, all that time, I'd been working on short stories. I'd been working on a novel, but they were my hobby. 
even though, you know, I felt a, a deep passion for it. It wasn't the priority in my life. I had to feed myself. I had to feed my kids. Um, but when my husband died, I just thought that's what I want to do. And I have to figure out a way to do it. Mm-hmm. So I uh, applied to the Institute of American Indian Arts to get my MFA. And I started that in 2016 and I graduated in 2018. And I have 400 pages drafted of a novel. And that's a I'm, lot of pages. It's a lot of pages. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big book. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I stopped before the ending for lots of reasons. Um, and I went back and I've started to, to revise it. it. A lot of those pages are just going to wind up on the editing floor. Right. But um, I'm doing it. And that's, that's what I want to do with my life. And I, I realized that it doesn't just happen. And I, I thought, you know, oh, well, I, I can't have a job and everything has to be perfect. And I have to, you know, be in this bucolic place in order to, to write and have all this time and this energy. And no, I, I do not. I need to sit my butt in the chair and write yeah. on a regular basis. That's the secret. Yeah. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do. So out of what was, I imagine, the incredibly painful death of your husband, which I believe you wrote an essay about that's on the rumpus. Right. Um, you realized you got to do, you got to do the thing <laughs> because yeah. that's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Cause you just don't, you don't, I always say, Oh, one day, one day. Mm-hmm. And him dying just brought home to me that you don't know that you have one day. Yeah. You have today. Yeah. So what do you do with it? Yeah. You know, and if that's what you really want to do, the only one stopping you from doing that is you. Mm, yep. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop myself from doing it anymore. So my kids are at that point were, well, they're 15 and 17 now. Don't make me do math. That's the no. I'm a writer. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, they were, they were old enough to help. Right. Um, and I told them what I wanted to do. And I said, but in order for me to do this, I, I really need you guys. I need your support. I need mm-hmm. you to step up and, you know, help with cooking and help with cleaning and be understanding when I work all day and then I'm in the office all night mm-hmm. um, working on the writing or, you know, working on weekends or whatever. And I said, what do you think? And God bless them. They said, you should do it, mom. That's and awesome. they, I've dragged them to my readings, and, <laughs> uh, you know, of course, for my graduation and whatever they were there, they've tolerated me going away for, you know, the, when I was doing the low residency MFA, I would go away for eight days twice a year. Right. Um, and then when I got finished, I did a, a few residencies where I was gone a couple, I was gone a whole month. Mm. And, you know, while they didn't like it, they were supportive and understanding and took care of things while I was gone. I know. I, I just, I feel like if, um if you decide you're going to do something and put your heart and soul into it, the universe will help you make it happen. Mm. So, and now you are the chief storyteller at the office of storytelling for the city and county of Denver. Best title ever. Best title ever. <laughs> it's actually exactly how I started my show notes for this episode. It's the best <laughs> title ever. Uh, what exactly does that entail? Tell us about I Am Denver and its inception and mission, why you're a part of it. Sure. Um, so when I left the mayor's office, I had been in a hundred conversations about how to better authentically engage community. Cause we put out press releases. We talked to media. We, you know, we were doing all these amazing things and nobody knew about them, mm. especially the people we needed to know about them. Um, the people who were going to benefit from the programs we were putting into place and, and whatnot. Um, people who had been underrepresented, Mm-hmm. historically we just weren't reaching them yeah. so I, I went over to hrcp and tried a couple of things out to reach folks i wanted to do a takeoff of humans of new york because mm-hmm. i'm just a, a huge fan of the work that they've done yeah i want and i told the mayor I, at that time i wanted to do i am denver but i had to figure out how to do it you know i i'm not a professional photographer i can write and whatnot but I don't know. I just needed to to figure out how to do it. And then I met um, Aaron Foley, who was at the time chief storyteller for Detroit. Mm. And uh, he was speaking at a conference I was at. And 
I immediately grabbed him and said, can I buy you a cup of coffee and pick your brain? And I asked him what they were doing. And he was essentially running a a newsroom on behalf of the city. Um, They had a different problem than, than Denver had in that they couldn't get a positive story to save their lives in the media. It was always just about, you know, this decaying city and how things were so bad and blah, 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 blah. But meanwhile, there was a bit of a renaissance going on in Detroit. Mm. And I think even when a city is struggling, there's still good things. There's still good people. Mm. And so Aaron was trying to to write about those things. Um, and it was, you know, photography and, and um, writing for the most part. Mm. Uh, his website, they did do some um, uh, audio files of um, like SoundCloud stuff. Because they have, you know, it's Motown. They have such great music there. So they were doing some of that kind of stuff. But I was inspired and I went back to our mayor and said, there are a lot of, there's, I grew up in in Denver. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very aware that the city I knew, the people I knew, the stories that were told were not reflected in the city's official history. Mm -hmm. The city's official history was, you know, largely about old white guys who were rich and ran things and you know they were the ones who got credit for everything that ever happened in the city and and that's just not reality right Right. i mean people of all stripes contribute to what this city has become and have have contributed and continue to contribute so um i asked if i could create the office of storytelling and with a focus on telling those stories and representing those communities in in stories and i wanted to do it in video. I wanted to do it on social because I, I want to meet people where they are. Mm. Um, people aren't picking up history books and, you know, especially like my kids, they don't, they don't pick up history books. They're on YouTube. They're, you know, on TikTok. They're on, you know, doing research on websites. They're not, they're not picking up books. Yeah. And, you know, they just, they want to watch videos. They don't want to read a big long thing. Right. So we decided to do it in video and in a couple of different ways. Um, My team is a bunch of recovering journalists, uh, a couple TV journalists, producers, and then a couple of us who had print experience in my my right hand, Roxana Soto. She has both um, print and TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a a reporter for, she's going to kill me. I I think it was Univision. Okay. Um, But she traveled all over the world. Um, with the TV station doing reporting Um, and she's completely bilingual and she's completely phenomenal. So um, we started going out and finding those stories, identifying those, those people who were missing those stories who were missing and started telling those stories. And then to engage the broader community, we would do what we called storytelling class. Mm. So we would invite people in community, we partner with a nonprofit and then invite their constituents to come in and do a workshop with us to help them find their story. And then we would give them the opportunity to record that story and then we would share it. Um, and that was sort of the beginnings of it. And we're, we still do some of that, although, you know, with COVID, we're not doing the storytelling laps right now in mm. person. But as, as the program has progressed and we're all of you know, almost two years old, um, at least from the pilot and my hope was that not only would we be able to tell stories, but we would get to a point where not only were we capturing those resident voices, but those resident voices were coming into the city to help influence policies and decision-making in the city. And we're, we're finally getting there. Mm. We're um, partnering with community planning and development, which is the group that um, has to permit projects. So if, you know, somebody's going to tear down a building or remodel a building redevelop something, they have to get approval to do that through this office. Mm. So what we're doing with them is we've got a grant to hire a historian that's going to help us track the history of Latinos in the city of Denver Mm. from its beginnings to the 1990s. Mm. And we're going to go out at Office of Storytelling, we'll go out and do these storytelling labs to help capture the oral histories around these places that are important to the community. And then all of it will become part of CPD and their decision-making process. So in the future, when somebody comes in and says, oh, I want to tear that theater down, they will have to 
address uh, the city in making the decision will have to assess the value of this from the point of view of this community, which hasn't been done before. Mm. Um, you know, no, like nobody's said these communities are important or this is whatever. It's all, it's mostly been about, you know, money. If you've got the money, you can make this happen. And there, you know, the redlined areas were prime for opportunities because the people living there were poor and they didn't have the money. They would lose their properties when the economy went down and, you know, developers would swoop in and get it and rebuild the neighborhood in the way they wanted it without regard to what the history of that neighborhood was or, you know, what that place had been to to that community. So this is a step to correct some of that. And we're mm -hmm. starting with the Latino community, but, you know, our goal is to continue and do the African-American community and the Jewish community and make sure that those those um, histories are, are not only captured for the future, and remembered, but that they're also remembered in a way that protects them and affects how the city uh, protects them, those properties moving forward. Yeah, that's incredible storytelling, uh, giving rise to policy change. I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> it's phenomenal. Yeah, I, yeah, I see. So I'm over in the kind of the Sloan's Lake area, 40 West mm -hmm. Arts District. It's in the new in the last couple of years. Um, and I teach at a dual language school in this community and exactly what you're saying about development and everything is, is happening 24 mm -hmm. seven here right now. So I mean, I, I would love to know how to bring that a little further outside of Denver too. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. I'm, I'm really proud of that growth in the project so quickly. Yeah. Um, because I, I mean, I, I am a firm believer in the power of story. I, I think that the problems that we're having as a society with Black Lives Matter and, you know, kids in cages and whatnot, a, a lot of those problems are fed by the fact that our stories aren't told. Yes. As long as somebody else is allowed to tell your story, they can portray you however they want to. Yes. And in this country, they portray it in a way that has negatively impacted our communities forever. Mm -hmm. You know, um, indigenous people were taken off of their lands and mur literally murdered and moved and they're, you know, punished and their kids were taken away, their families were destroyed, their societies were destroyed. And, you know, it was portrayed as manifest destiny, right. and, you know, that, oh, they're just gone now. They, 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 <clears throat> you know, they're a, a part of history and not a part of our present. And that's baloney. That's mm -hmm. just not reality. But as long as the, it's that storyline is allowed to continue, those abuses can continue. Yeah. They're justified. They're, they're, um, they're explained away. They're, you know, forgiven, if you will, uh, because they, they have a narrative that forgives them. Only when we are allowed to speak for ourselves and and there's some accountability for what we've done, can we look in the mirror and say, well, gee, maybe we could do things differently. Or maybe maybe the, the reason that um, there is poverty in these neighborhoods isn't a result of these people not working hard or, or not getting an education or whatever you know, pointing fingers at us, but to be able to point fingers at a system that has allowed these people to be taken advantage of, that has forced them to, you know, into um, loans that are harder, harder with higher interest rates, mm -hmm. um, into, you know, areas that they don't invest in, that the, the parks are bad, the schools are bad, the whatever. I, I mean, until we can tell our own story and, and help to shine a light in those areas, then I don't, I don't, I don't think things will change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where, where people think, Oh, who, you know, why, why does a city have to be telling stories? A city has a million reasons to be telling stories, <laughs> especially when they've done things in the past as an institution that has affected, affected places in the city, people in the city that, you know, we're feeling those consequences now. Homelessness is, you know, uh, the, it's not the city's fault. It, it's not. And um, the city's tried to fix things, but you know, if until we acknowledge that our our policies around how we treat mental health, how we treat health in general, how we um, pay people, and whether they're living 
they're earning a, a living wage. Until we address those kinds of things and tell those stories, then we can pretend that, oh, it's their fault. They did it. You know, <clears throat> if they weren't an alcoholic, then, you know, they wouldn't be living on the street like that. Well, it's just not that simple. Right. It's really not <laughs> simple. And there are lots of lots of reasons that those that person wound up there and lots of reasons that we as a city are are having to face this. And today, I mean, it's very clear that we're still not doing it. The, what's happening with COVID, what's happening with the homeless situation here in Denver now. I mean, we, we don't we don't look in the mirror and figure out, well, gee, how did this happen? Yeah. What got us here? And so then maybe how could we fix it? What are the solutions? We're not we don't look. So right. until to me, until we tell stories, until we recognize where our responsibility lies, we won't find the solutions that we need. Absolutely. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm trying to do what I'm doing. I that's why I wanted you on the show so badly because I feel like we have the same passion around that. Um, I just want to say thank you for doing that work. <laughs> and then, no, uh, thank you. I'm I'm really blessed to be able to do it. That's incredible. Um, it, it, you know, I, I have a very unique position in the whole country. Yeah, and um, I, I really do feel blessed to to have the job that I have, and I also feel the pressure to to prove why it's so valuable. Right. You know, I mean, I'll be honest. I was, I was, uh, when I worked in news and I spent, you know, a career trying to be a voice for marginalized community, you know, particularly Latino community. Cause that's my community. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just, I fought every day. That was part of why I was so exhausted. And I left because it was a constant battle that I had to prove why our stories had value. Why, our voices should be included, you know, especially yeah. if you're talking about, um, you know, a raid at Swift in Greeley. Yeah. How can you talk to people who aren't involved, who, you know, somebody who was arrested, somebody whose whose dad was arrested? How do you not talk to those people when that's the story? Right. But that's, that's part of the whole problem, right? If you're talking to the official voices and you're not capturing this child whose mom got picked up and you know, now what are they going to do? Who's going to get them to school? Who's going to feed them? Who's going to, if you leave that part out, you've dehumanized this That's whole story. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. Those are just numbers. Those are just immigrants. Yeah. Those aren't real people until you tell their story and make them real people. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know, I feel a responsibility to, to keep proving why this matters. Yeah. which is exhausting. I'll be, I'll tell you truthfully. I like, I, I, I long for a day that I don't have to keep proving it, yeah. that, that people just begin to understand that this, this is important and it hasn't been done and it needs to be done if we're ever going to advance as a society and get past so many of the problems that we have today. Yeah. I mean, like, like you said, if they're the official voices of these stories are people that aren't even involved most of the time, it's just perpetuating that white supremacist narrative basically in this country so yeah, especially if it's the pr folks for, yeah you know these organizations they, they're going to try to put the best spin on it they can to make these folks the bad guys and if you don't hear from those other folks you know they're we're lazy we won't necessarily go out and read or find it as a source or or think about what you know what else we've lost a lot of empathy i mean that's another goal of my project is we've lost so much empathy. We just don't care about each other anymore. It's all about me, 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 me. And my hard. hope is that in telling some of these other stories, we begin to recognize that you're not so different from me and we are all connected. Whether you like it or not, we are connected. So if these folks are suffering, somehow, some way that is going to come back to me in time. Right. I mean, I was raised, um, I was raised on the East Coast, but Bless you. <laughs> um, I was raised under, you know, my my mother's family are immigrants from Italy, <laughs> but um, you know, I was taught that really oversimplified narrative my whole childhood growing up. You know, the homeless are homeless because you know they don't work, and people of color are in these communities because what what i mean just very awful simplistic mm -hmm. uh, narratives so I'm just, it's the american narrative yeah it's the white supremacist narrative yeah i'm thankful for you yeah. and the work you do Thank in you. your in Thank your you. yeah um in your work sounds like and looks like you've met a lot of 
profound and incredible writers. Claudia Rankin, Sandra Cisneros, Sonia Sotomayor. I'm curious about some of your favorite or most memorable interactions with those authors or politicians or sure um i'll tell you the most recent one um i did wind up going to awp the um american writers and writers program conference the biggest writers conference in the country every year um i wound up going in march even though covid was beginning yeah i was already i was already traveling um when they were starting to say oh this should you know you should stop and the conference organizers were revisiting whether what they would do with the conference. I was already in process to getting there. So I went ahead and and went and I had, it was in San Antonio and I have family in San Antonio. So I had, you know, multiple reasons for wanting to be there. So I went and it was actually the best AWP I've been at because it was half the people of normal. So where it's really overwhelming and there are gazillions of people and you can't even see who you're looking for because there are so many people. This wasn't that way. It was much more low key. And, and, you know, so many sessions were canceled. My session was canceled. The the one I was presenting on. Mm-hmm. So it was just a lot more about hanging out, talking to writers and, and being, being chill. And, uh, but still my favorite writer, one of my favorite writers was there. Louise Erdrich mm. was there. And I had never met her. I've admired her for years, but I had never met her. And she had a new book come out. So she she gave a, a keynote. And after the keynote, um, the the indigenous writers group was was she wanted to attend that with us. So we went to this, you know, little conference room and there were, I don't know, eight, ten of us there. <laughs> So I walked with her from her reading to the conference room, just chatting. Mm. And then, you know, she was part of this meeting that we had and, and we chatted some more and she asked about my work and, you know, was asking others about their work. And, and I I have to, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm normally not a fangirl, right? I've, <laughs> I've met lots of folks. So I, you know, I, I handle it in stride. Um, and this time I was a fangirl. Yeah. I could not. <laughs> I could not stop grinning. I mean, it was just ear to ear grin. I felt so goofy, <laughs> but I couldn't help it. I was just so happy, especially because she was everything I had ever imagined or wanted her to be. Mm. You know, you meet some celebrities and they're rude or they're right. whatever. And, you know, whatever you imagined to them just isn't real, which, hello, they're people. Mm-hmm. Why would they meet your <laughs> vision of them? But she was kind and she was smart and she was interested and interesting and mm-hmm. just fun and friendly. And uh, I, I'm I'm even more in love with her now. <laughs> That's amazing. I remember my I I was in San Antonio, too. I, I remember seeing you in the lobby and I shouted, Ro, I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I do remember that. You were on I the phone. So. But <laughs> I yeah, I have fangirl moments at AWP more often than mm-hmm. I like to admit. But um, <laughs> so I get it. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite. Um, but yeah, I mean, there have been other times like uh, Ross Gay mm. came to um, do a reading at my MFA program uh, with the, uh, oh gosh, the Gratitude Poetry Book. The name just slipped out of my brain. Um, but it's one of my favorites. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. And he read to us and made me cry. I mean, it was just so beautiful. And then I went up to him afterward and I'm, you know, emotional and, and he was just as kind and gracious as you would think. He's a big, tall guy and I'm a little tiny woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just remember like putting my arms around his waist. (laughs) It's just so, so sweet and so wonderful. Um, yeah, he was really great. And then, um, Claudia Rankin. Mm. Before we started I Am Denver, I did a project called Denver Talks, mm-hmm. where we invited the residents of the city and county of Denver to read her book, um, Citizen and American Lyric. Mm-hmm. And it's about racial microaggressions. Yeah. It's probably, you know, one of the best books I've ever read that really explains what it feels like to live a life of, of racial microaggression, how yeah. it makes you feel, how it affects you. Um, she really, she really captured that and really captured, you know, what it's like to be in that society and just have that affecting you all the time. 
I got to hang out with her <laughs> while she was here in town. Um, she did a conversation with the mayor at Betcher Concert Hall. We did a con- um, rather a conversation at MSU with students, and then we did a, a private conversation with police officers and the and the chiefs of all the departments: the fire, sheriff, hmm. police, executive director, safety. We were all, you know, in a room chatting about these really difficult topics around race and yeah. racial microaggression and whatnot. And those were all they were brilliant and amazing, and I think uh, ahead of the curve as far as you know, some of the stuff that's happening now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, uh, while Claudia was here, I volunteered to be her chauffeur and her escort. And, <laughs> you know, for very selfish reasons, right. I, I wanted to hang out with Claudia Reichert. And she, she too was just everything I had imagined she would be. And even more brilliant than than her books would indicate, if you can believe that. Like her yeah. books are so brilliant. But for example, we um, we did a a little workshop thing at Lighthouse. Um, and she asked participants to do a bit of a writing exercise. And then when, you know, they finished writing, she would call on people to share their writing. And somebody'd stand up and they'd read, you know, it was just a few sentences, but they'd get up and they'd read it. And she'd close her, her eyes and she would listen to them, read it. And then she would say, you know, read it again. And they'd read it one more time. And then she'd say, okay, well, now this time read it and take out whatever, like mm-hmm. change this or do that. And I mean, I was just <laughs> blown away at her ability, one, to just hear it so clearly that she could make edits mm. instantly. <laughs> that, I mean, oh, I could listen to it 12 times and I would still have to say, can you print that for me so yeah. I can look at it? Um, but, wow. And then when I told, I, I, complimented her afterward I was like damn that was impressive and she's like yeah I've been a teacher for a long time (laughs) it's a goddamn American treasure (laughs) oh she she so was she yeah um I I feel really grateful to have spent just a little bit of time with her I I I took her to Union Station and showed around and we did a little bit of touring we didn't have a whole lot of time she was only here for two days but um yeah that that was uh that was a blast. That's special. Mm-hmm. Um, I I emailed her about the podcast, but I don't know that I'll ever hear back. <laughs> that would be well, that would be yeah, a fangirl has, moment for me. Yeah, she has uh, quite the machine around her. Well, like I know, um, to get her here was uh, an expense, right? That we um, we had to raise money to to make happen, right? Um, worth it yeah <laughs> oh i mean absolutely yeah. um everybody who had the opportunity to be part of that effort which was i mean we touched thousands of people yeah and i heard from all of them like wow i hadn't thought about it like that before um this book really helped me to see things differently um i didn't understand i i i have to learn more i have to do better um which was you know that was what we were hoping would happen and that's the power, you know, for the people we were able to touch. Yeah, that's yeah. that's absolutely what happened. Yeah, and to be able to hear her answer questions and and talk about things from her perspective to bring, you know, that brilliance um, into into the room. Please, <laughs> yeah. I think I think the only person I've ever been um, around that was more impressive to me, and not that I'm comparing really, but um, I, I got to hear Maya Angelou speak. I did too. Back when I was at the post. And I walked out of there feeling like I had been in the presence of God. Yeah. I mean, I just like that that might sound hyperbolic, but it didn't feel that way at all. I mean, I really felt like I'd been touched and and I was just I was open. I was aware. I was awake. Mm. I was loved. Um, and I didn't even get to meet her. I just got to hear her speak with a crowd yeah. of other people and and I was that affected. I still have my I was a, I was in the my first two years of community college and she was going to read or speak in some nearby city. I still have my ticket stub. It was like eight bucks or something. We took a bus <laughs> there and it was. It was like and I, that I was young. I was twenty, twenty one. I was just waking up to any of these social issues at all. So it was it was incredible. An incredible mm-hmm. gift to see her and hear her. Mm-hmm. She had, I mean, almost all of us were crying oh, and yeah. left in tears. Just, you know, and I, I think 
for different reasons we were we were emotional but her that spoke to me to her capacity to to touch what was important yeah and that that's a gift that not all of us have right um one other writer that's super meaningful to me and i think you as well as sanders sanders cisneros and i've in particular i've been teaching her house on mango street to my mm-hmm. upper elementary kids and it's one of the most profound and powerful texts that we read it seems to really really get get them and they get it so uh you're you are and forgive me for probably saying this wrong but a macondista macondista Macondista. what does that mean what was that like (laughs) um well i'll tell you that the first time i really felt like i saw myself in a book and not somebody just you know, who had some traits like me or that I could make myself fit that model, but actually me, like, this is me, this is my family. This is, these are people I know was Sandra Cisneros. Mm -hmm. A friend, um, when I was working at the post, they, you know, would get review copies of books. And so they got so many that they would do uh, quarterly book sales and you could go get these books for, for nothing. Right. practically and then what the money that they got would go into a scholarship fund well i was there and a i hadn't even heard of sandra cisneros and a, a one of my friends said oh you should you should take this one and you'll love it okay. and it was a i got a first edition of um women hollering creek mm. uh for sandra cisneros and and i read it and oh my god yeah i was blown away i not only did i see myself but i saw that i could do it that i could write that my stories could be in a book like that was the first time that you know, it didn't just, it wasn't just this big dream. It was like, wow, you know, she could do this. I could do this. Um, I could be what I could see. Right. Mm. Um, so she started Macondo at her kitchen table. She just was in San Antonio. She wanted a writer's community. So she created one. She invited these women, I think mostly women to come and, and talk writing, um, at her home. And, Many of those people are still involved. It, it, you know, it, it grew into this bigger thing where people would apply and um, want want to be part of it. And but you had to meet certain criteria. You had to be invited. It was it wasn't this big open thing. Right. And then for a few years it went away. Mm-hmm. And I didn't meet the qualifications when the applications were open or the invitations or what. I don't even remember what it was. Um, so I couldn't be part of it. But then just a couple years ago it came back. Mm-hmm. And I applied and I got in. Yes. Um, and it just means that I'm like part of this community of of writers. And a lot of us are Chicana, but not all of us are Chicana. That there's a, a pretty broad group of folks um, who are part of this. And we get to go to, she doesn't, Sandra doesn't live in San Antonio anymore, but she still hosts um, Macondo in San Antonio. Well, the, her organizing group does. Mm-hmm. Um so we go once a week and you do, you do workshops. Um, there are readings, uh, there are craft talks and Sandra's there and we get to hang out with her and chat with her and just, you know, be with her. She did the, the first night I was there. I had met her before at an AWP mm-hmm. um, years ago, but you know, here's sign my book and I love you. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> um, but in this case, that for the opening night, she came and, you know, gave opening remarks at the dinner and whatnot. And all that effort, she was barefoot because she's Sandra and she could do whatever the hell she wants. Um, but she welcomed us. And just while being barefoot may have been about comfort for her or whatever, it was also about comfort for us. Right. right? Like she was just saying, hey, we're familia here. And, you know, I went and got to chat with her. And now, I, I mean, once you're admitted as a macondista you're a macondista forever so i have this community of of writers Mm. um who look like me and think like me and and want to tell some of the same kinds of stories um across the country Mm. and i mean wow what a gift yeah (laughs) i mean when you decided to do it you did it all the way I'm not done yet. Yeah, baby. I know. I can't <laughs> I wait. Book. <laughs> I know. So yeah, let's close with that. Is there anything that you could share about the novel? I mean, I know sure. people don't like to beforehand, but I'm- no, I, I don't, I don't mind. Um, so 
at this point it's called 500 springs that's you know title number 83 mm-hmm. <laughs> who the hell knows what it'll finally wind up to be but um it's a love story mm. it's the, the the tale of two people who have been together in various forms in various lifetimes over the course of 500 years um but they wow. just can't get it right and they're together again in the present and the question is will they finally make it mm. and it's about colonialism it's about um alcoholism it's about how the past has got us here Mm. and why you know we're we're living these um epigenetic Mm. histories why why they keep coming back and and why why things are the way they are wow okay Mm -hmm. you need to get get that published (laughs) i need to read that i need to read that that sounds incredible I mean, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's hard. I know. I know. <laughs> hardest thing I've ever done. What but doing? Uh, I'm doing it. You're doing and it. And I'm, I, you know, as as most writers, there are days when I'm like, I got this. I can do this. This is brilliant. And then there are other days where, you know, this is crap. And why am I sitting in a room by myself when I could be out enjoying the day? What what is the value in this? But you know, ultimately. Like we've talked about here, there's there's so much value in the written word. Somebody to be able to see themselves. You don't you don't know what life you change, and regardless of how many lives it ultimately changes, it's changed mine. Right. And how you know I'm able to to process my experience, to process our society, to process some of the challenges that I see my friends, my family, my city going through, my country going through. Um, I can at least try to make sense of it in my own brain and Mm. hope, you know, one day that it'll help other people make some sense of this craziness. I imagine it will. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I want to be your friend and I want to be involved with I am Denver. Um, Let's talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. It's really important work and I just, I'm so thankful. No, thank you, Chris. This has been really fun. And um I, I really am thrilled to talk about uh, my my novel, of course, but also this uh, the I Am Denver stuff. Mm-hmm. It's it's such important work, and I think anything we can do um, as a city, as a community, as a society to to help further our stories, the powers of the the power of the neglected stories, it, it will benefit all of us.